All right. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the UFC Orlando post-fight special. If you don't want any spoilers, now is your chance to get out of here so you can avoid them. This is, this is your one opportunity to break away. If you've not seen it yet, uh, five, four, three, two, one. All right, with that out of the way, let's get this going here, shall we? Let's do it. All right, first of all, do me a favor, please uh, like the video, give it a thumbs up, and subscribe to the channel below. This video is brought to you by the Beta Academy. If you're ever in Washington, D.C., you want a place to train under a Pedro Sauer black belt, you can do some Muay Thai, strength and conditioning, wrestling, the whole nine yards. It's at the corner of 14th and Florida. This video is brought to you by them. It's where I'm a member, so go check it out. Um, okay, as I mentioned, if you don't want any spoilers, it's now too late. By the way, just to reintroduce myself, my name is Luke Thomas. I'm the host of the Luke Thomas Show on Sirius XM Rush Channel 93, as well as senior editor over at MMAfighting.com. UFC Orlando has just ended, so let's break down everything that we saw. Let me pull up all the results just to make sure uh, that I've got them all in the right spot. Jeremy Stevens is a goddamn hammer, y'all. All right, here we go. Tonight's event took place at the Amway Center in Orlando, Florida. I do not have any attendance figures, though hopefully I'll have that by the end of this program, uh, as well as who got bonuses, as well as everything else. So, for now, Jeremy Stevens defeats Josh Emmett via KO at 135 of the second round. Where do we start with this? Uh, Jeremy Stevens is really good about uh, punching in combination. He's pretty good about getting people as they exit out, depending on which direction they're going. He did get a little overzealous in that first round, using that same uppercut, I believe, that he used to sleep Rafael Dos Anjos back in the day, the sort of leaping uh, rear-hand uppercut. Oops, hang on now. State-of-the-art technology here on this podcast. Um, so he got dropped there and recovered, did a nice job there, uh, in, 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 at least in holding on, if, if we can dock him for being overcommitted to the, to the punch. But basically he did the same thing he did. Uh, he fights not exactly the same way necessarily, but he wants to do the same things. It's like the Duho Choi fight. He wants to put pressure on you to get behind the two black lines. He wants you reacting. Typically, he wants you to get to throw, and then he can throw a little bit afterwards and then finish the combination. That's really what he did. He ducked the punch, rolled, came over with a right hook, and then came over with the left hook. And the left hook actually hit the tip of the chin because it, 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 it almost anticipates that you're going to be either, uh, it, it, not in motion side to side, but maybe motion forward and back, um, that he can catch you as you're trying to exit or as you're getting a little bit lazy with your defense, and it did. It did exactly that. It was, a, it was a vicious shot. But of course, everyone's going to be asking, what about the knee? Was it legal? The finish was, if we just put the legality of the knee aside for just a second, the left hook was amazing. I mean, Jeremy Stevens has such incredible power, right? Drops Emmett, goes after him. First of all, one of those shots landed to the back of the head. Now, some of that could just be incidental contact, but it definitely landed to the back of the head. One clean one. All right, I'm not saying... Stevens targeted it, but it, it, it definitely landed where it shouldn't have. So then what about the knee? So let's say for a second he the knee does not land. It does, but let's just say for a second it doesn't. Stevens follows up a tumbling backwards. Um, Emmett, I believe another punch landed in there, and then he finishes him off with a elbow over the top. Jeremy Stevens has the best elbows in grounded pound since Joe Riggs finished off Kendall Grove. I mean, he, Joe Riggs used to have savage Grounded pound on top. 
And I would say that, at least in terms of the elbows, Jeremy Stevens is like the heir apparent to that or something. I, I don't know exactly, but he has absolutely... If he's got you hurt and you're kind of, your defense is a little shaky, man, he will tear you to pieces. All right, so what about that knee? That's an interesting one. So to me, here's my sense of things, and we could go back and review it a, a gazillion times. It lands. I don't think it impacted the fight finish in any real way. To me, it looks like it lands, but it kind of skids off, or it, it doesn't really land with any kind of authority. In fact, it was a subsequent shot after that kind of just slides. It was almost like a rock skipping on the surface of a water. Like, it makes contact, but you're not dropping an anchor in there. Now, that may not be the entire issue, though. I pulled up the most recent unified rules, such as they're relevant, and here's what it says about kneeing or kicking the head of a grounded opponent. A grounded fighter is defined as any part of the body other than a single hand and the soles of the feet touching the fighting area floor. To be grounded, both hands, palm, fist, uh, should be down and or any other body part must be touching the fighting area floor. He was definitely down. A single knee arm makes the fighter grounded without having to have any other body part in touch with the fighting area floor. At this time, kicks or knees to the head will not be allowed. Same rule for stomping a grounded fighter. Stomping is considered any type of striking action with the feet where the fighter lifts their leg up, bending their leg at the knee, and then initiates striking action with the bottom of their foot in the air. Axe kicks are not considered stomps, yada, yada, yada. And they go through the definition of a grounded fighter again. But the key sentence there is, at this time, which was the time, kicks or knees to the head will not be allowed. So I'm a little bit unclear about what the protocol is here, like I'm sure many of you are. Did the knee land? Technically, the knee landed. Did the knee landing have any impact on the fight finish? That doesn't seem like a very strong argument to me. However, if all we are trying to assess is whether it made contact, not we're not trying to grade the quality of the contact or the or the uh, not really the impact itself, but the proverbial impact it had ultimately on the outcome. You're just trying to ask, did it, did it touch? Uh, and if that carries consequences, then there was obviously a bit of a problem here, if that's the case. So it's a bit of a weird one, where it clearly touched him, but is touching sufficient for having this reviewed, turned into a no contest, um, having the results put in question in some kind of way? I would not imagine, if I'm Josh Emmett, that I would want to pursue this, not because he wouldn't necessarily have a case. Maybe if the state was California, but this is Florida. Florida is just... Texas with more, you know, proportionally more shoreline. It's the the commission there is god awful. I wouldn't trust them to get even if even if that was actually the protocol where it, look, you made contact, man. That's that's the end of it. Even trying to throw that shot would be considered illegal, and that the fight should have been halted for a moment or that you know some kind of penalty should have been, should have been assessed. Even if that's the case, and I'm not sure that it is, but let's say that it is. Um, it's Florida. They're not. You do think they want to, like, upend a important KO victory or something? I mean, I, I wouldn't trust them at all. They're insane. So, probably what we're looking at here is, even if Josh Emmett has a case, which is a little bit debatable, but let's say that he does, it probably doesn't matter. Um, that, it's, it's a hard call. People are like, well, Dan Mergliotta didn't act. I think what Dan Mergliotta was trying to assess in real time was whether or not the knee made contact, and if it didn't make contact, 
you didn't want to interrupt the flow of a fight. And I think if you look at it from that perspective, then he, then in that sense, he made the right call. Because again, I don't see a strong argument that the reason Josh Emmett got viciously KO'd was because that knee played a significant role in that regard. Uh, I, I just don't see it. I don't see that at all. I, I think he just got beat fair and square in the sense of that which landed um, with impact was legal. Of course, an illegal one landed, an illegal strike was thrown, and that begins to get to the issue of what the proper protocol is after the fact. But I'm guessing Florida is going to do nothing because most commissions, in the event of having an opportunity to right a wrong, such as this is one, or give a fighter a break, such as this is a one that merits something like that, they don't do it. So take that for what it's worth. Um, now, what does this do for Jeremy Stevens? If we pull up the rankings, which are foobard, but they are relevant, here's what we have at Featherweight as it stands today. Max Holloway is your champion. As I mentioned on Twitter earlier today, Jose Aldo, despite the fact that he's been finished in back-to-back -back contests is somehow the number one contender at featherweight, which just tells you how unbelievably broken those rankings are. But that's where he is. Then you have two and three are Frankie Edgar and Brian Ortega, right? They're going to be fighting in a week. So here's my thought. I don't think Jose Aldo should be holding that number one spot at all, at all. This is a debate for a separate time. We can't get into the nitty-gritty details. But here is my personal belief about the rankings, and it's relevant to this contest because Jeremy Stevens is articulating that there's a few people. Actually, no. He, well, Josh Emmett had the four spot. Then there's Swanson, then Lamas, and then Chance on Jung, and then Stevens. Stevens will probably leapfrog, I'm guessing, those other ones. Because uh, Jung, more or less inactive, Lamas, and Swanson are coming off of losses. So is Emmett. So Stevens will probably take a massive jump following this contest. If that's the case, and it puts him behind Ortega and Edgar, as we mentioned, who are fighting next week. Now, here's the deal with that. If they want to give the winner of Edgar Ortega a title shot, that's fine. And I guess if they wanted to give uh, Aldo and, and Stevens some kind of a fight, that's fine too. But what I wouldn't be okay with is unless Aldo fights Stevens, Aldo being ahead in the queue for a title shot. To me, that would be absurd. Totally absurd. Cain Velasquez hasn't fought since UFC 200. He's ranked fourth. Ronda Rousey is ranked ninth. I mean, we have a major, major problem with the way we do rankings where... What's happening is we're letting tenure over an historic win that really is no longer relevant to the way in which contendership is set, is set to be established. We're letting that person hold a spot way longer than they're supposed to. And there's causing very little turnover at the top of a division. Because if you lose to the champ, you just stay the number one contender. This is insane. This is totally insane. And it's not justifiable, and it ruins the rankings completely for me. Um, now... If they wanted to say that Stevens hasn't amassed enough wins over top five guys in order to get a title shot independent of the other issues, then I wouldn't be uh, objectionable to that notion, nor would I suggest that he deserves a title shot ahead of Edgar or Ortega, who are ranked respectively two and three. But this is a big, big win for him. This is his most recent campaign, by the way, Jeremy Stevens, that he's been on. It's worth reviewing where he's been because he's had some ups and he's had some downs. Remember, he dropped two in a row, one to Frankie Edgar, and then one to Hanato Moicano, which was a split decision, a little bit controversial. Since then, in September, he beat Gilbert Melendez, and then in January, he beat Duho Choi, and then followed up five weeks later with a win over Josh Emmett. Both of those, by the way, TKO and then a KO finish. Um, that's a great place to be if you're 
if you're um, Jeremy Stevens. I didn't really believe that Emmett should have been ranked at fourth to begin with. I know it was a nice win over Ricardo Lamas, and usually I'm in favor of pretty bold and aggressive rankings jumps um, just to keep the, uh, the contendership queue moving. But that one seemed a little bit on the high side, but nevertheless, um, if you're Stevens now and you can take that place, that seems to me a little bit more of a justifiable spot to be in. But it's a fucking Jeremy Stevens is a hammer, man. He's a hammer. You know, when he gets and when he resorts to his more natural instincts, you can see that a guy who has a good game plan, good defense, good timing, you know, an elite MMA fighter, they can they can have some success against him. But in the hands of uh, Coach Eric Del Fiero and being able to execute on a game plan and stick into his strengths and not overexposing himself, Jeremy Stevens can do a lot. We're going to talk about Mike Perry later. Mike Perry's only 26 years old. He's only been fighting for less than four years. He has some time to figure this out. But that's the kind of improvement that he needs to make. The guy likes to strike. He is obviously heavy-handed. But if you just sort of rely on that, you will run into a buzzsaw eventually. And Josh Emmett nearly had him uh, with that. But in the end, he was able to overcome. Not the worst thing in the world for Josh Emmett. I mean, I know it's a ter terrible loss tonight, uh, obviously. And at 32 years old, I'm sure he's not happy about it. The guys have to work very hard to get where he is. But he's... I don't know exactly how much rank he'll lose. I mean, once you jump into the top four, the way the rankings work now, you can lose a lot and stay highly ranked. I don't think he'll drop that far. He might even drop just to five, to be honest. I guess we'll see. So he's not that far out of the running for fights against other big names, which means he has a good rebound opportunity. They might match him with a Ricardo Lamas for a rematch, or they might match him with a Cub Swanson if Swanson signs a new deal or um, something like that. So... He will probably get another big name, which is a chance to get a good rebound. If he's as good as he says he is, then he can do that. Obviously, though, that's you know, it's a tough way to go out, um, especially in your 30s. But he does have wins over Felipe Aranches and, of course, Ricardo Lamas. And the Des Green fight was a bit of a tough one. Wins over John Tuck, Scott Holtzman as well. So the only two fights he's lost the Des Green fight and then this one. The Des Green fight was a very, 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 very close one. You could really argue this was his only UFC loss to date. Something to keep in mind. By the way, to his credit... He also made weight, which he did not last time. This wasn't much of a storyline, either heading into this fight or about this contest. But remember, he came in well over the weight against Ricardo Lamas, taking that fight on short notice. He said he had never missed weight before. This was something relatively new. He comes into this contest, and uh, he made weight no problem. So I think we should probably uh, give him a bit of a mulligan. So really, the issue here is going to end up on where these guys fall in the rankings and, and how the UFC uses that to follow. My hunch is that the winner of Ortega and Edgar should get the next title shot. And how it shakes out after that, you know, I don't know. But Jeremy Stevens, man, he's a bad dude. He's a real bad dude. If he can just, if he can just, it's interesting. Like, if he can channel his, like, dark competitive impulses, especially against a hurt opponent, it's, like, perfect MMA. Um, but when an opponent is fresh and doing the kinds of things that where they're sticking and moving, it, it becomes a major liability. So if he can apply it, in a, if he can channel it and then apply it in a certain scenarios, he could be really interesting. By the way, one thing that um, Josh Emmett does that I, I'm starting to not like, uh, that I liked before, he does the stand switch stutter step. Have you guys noticed that? He'll, he'll stand, I think, orthodox. He'll switch to uh, southpaw real quickly and then stutter step and then either hit a, hit a dart or sometimes, sometimes he'll even switch back and then throw a left hook or a hook from the opposite side, depending on which way he's going. And that's fine against some of the lower-level guys, but it didn't... It, it, I mean, you basically... Jeremy Stevens no-sold it the entire time. It looks to me like this is something he's been going to the well on a little bit that um, has worked up to this point, but is getting a little bit 
you can just game plan around it now, and I think that's the problem. You can, there's there are certain guys that have tools that you can you know they're going to come right. You know that they've got it. You know, pick up Brian Kelleher's guillotine or you know Krokop's head kick or you know left leg cemetery thing, right? You know it's coming, and you may not just be able to stop it just because it's so dominant. But then there are things where you can game plan around that are not necessarily dominant, but that are part and parcel of your game. That once they take that away from you, you're talking about one of the more foundational building blocks. You lose that, and you can lose. You just become predictable. It's not. Um, it didn't work. It didn't look like it was doing anything for him tonight. Uh, in fact, what was doing him good was that the the presence of mind to throw that. I think it was it a right hook as Stevens was like lunging into him. So there'll be a debate about this knee. I'm sure half of you might believe that it was illegal and the fight result should be overturned. Some of you are probably like me, where it definitely landed, and the rules pretty clearly say it landed, but what the impact of that should be seems a little unclear. Given that, it's hard to make a real strong argument that it affected the outcome. Some of you might also be like, who gives a damn, just let it roll. It wasn't, like, I just don't care that much. So I'm sure that people are a little bit all over the place on this one, and I don't pretend to give you the right answer tonight. I don't, I don't know what that is, other than to say, my hunch is we should let the results stand. Because if there was, if we, had, if we had even any inclination to believe that it affected the outcome, I'd be in favor of, of, of doing the right thing. But taking away a win from the guy for that seems harsh. It seems harsh. All right, so let's talk about that co-main event now as we pull this up here. Jessica Andrade, good Lord, defeating Tisha Torres. Unanimous decision, 29-27, 29-28, 29-28. I had it 29-28 as well. Probably those, the first two rounds were kind of hard to score. Third round, not so hard. But the first two rounds were hard to score. You know what's amazing to me? Tisha Torres is a tank. Tisha Torres is a complete tank at 115. And she was getting ragdolled by Jessica Andrade. Folks forget she fought Liz Carmouche back at... I know Carmouche has dropped to flyweight. But they fought at Bantamweight, I do believe. And... Andrade was giving her the business physically at 135 pounds. At 135 pounds, Liz Carmouche's nickname, I mean, it's a nickname now, but this is a nickname she got fighting women at, at that weight class was Gorilla. Oh, my God. Jessica Andrade literally might be pound for pound the strongest person in the UFC. And I know Alir Latifi's out there deadlifting to the point where he's ripping the, the you know, the, the I can't quite, you can't quite see it, the callus off of his hand, right, just, just coming right off in the deadlift grip, and I'm sure he's strong as a goddamn ox, believe me, I'm under no illusion that he's some weak guy, get that train coming, forgot to close the door, oh well, um, amazing, she is, she, I mean, like they say that the strongest um, animals uh, in the world are actually ants, right, because you look at proportionally what the kind of weight they can carry, it's kind of like that. Like she's she's not a big person, but holy Jesus, she had that one takedown where you know you need to have a neutral spine for two reasons. One, if your spine is curved, where right, you can do that's when, when you get the spinal flexion, that's when you can get damage to it, right? That's when the, that's when the problems occur. The neutrality prevents that. But the other reason is that neutrality the neutrality also enables proper force production. Right, so it's hard to get in that position, either for a technical lift or to get in on someone, especially when you're pressing them into the fence. She didn't even have it. Her back was rounded like a cat that you had scared, like totally rounded, and she just heaved or she womaned 
tore his up and then dumped her. Had hit her with a fireman's carry. Was all, all they all she needed for a high crotch was just one leg. She hit the crackdown a couple of times. But all she needed was the one leg, and then she could just pick her up. I it was shocked. Even late into the third round, she was like just using He-Man strength to get her over. I couldn't believe how strong she was. I'm going to call her Jessica Lasha Talahadze Andrade, man, because oh my god. And the thing is. When you're like that, you get this rep as, you know, as the Incredible Hulk. Like, the only reason the Incredible Hulk is of any kind of value as a superhero is just that, that enormous strength and, I guess, the rage that perhaps goes with it. But you wouldn't call Hulk some kind of refined, you know, talent or something like that, right? It's not who he is. And she is sometimes not that. Like, you look at her guard passing, it's a little of both. You know, she can drop a knee quickly to kill a thigh before the, the, someone tries to close a guard. Right, she can she can stop that from happening, but then on the other side, she'll just take the leg and just drive it behind her, right, and then occupy the space, and then she goes back to being halfway technical, halfway a bruiser. But it's just not true. She's all the way bruiser. Um, she gets by on that strength a lot, but it's I mean, if you were her, would you not use it? It's such an advantage. It's such a formidable weapon, and she knows it, and she absolutely knows it. I, I'm 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 amazed by this. Plus. This might be one of the better women's fights I've ever seen. Tisha Torres had the right game plan. This was a well-matched fight. Person who wants to come forward, who has the size and strength advantage, versus this other person who, by the way, is no physical pushover at all, but likes to is good at getting on their horse, sticking and moving. I thought it was a real good cat and mouse game for a while. I really take my hat off to these ladies, man. That was a fantastic contest, a really good main event, excuse me, co-main event. Um, and Tisha Torres is doing a lot of the right things, a lot of lateral movement. But I had Eve Edwards on my show on Friday, he made a really good point. He was like, you know, let's see how it looks in the first, even in the second round. But then, once you're in the second round, of course, you have to win it. There's only three rounds. you got to win two and three. But let's see how it looks early in the second round. Of course, the first round, how many of those exchanges is she able to get away from? Because, you know, a few of them, sure. But eventually, if, she, if they're getting harder and harder to get away from, that's a real bad sign, right? You want to be able to shut them down all the time. And, of course, you got that big takedown at the end of the first round. And from there, more in the second round and then totally controlled her in the third and he just thought that the size and strength would be would be too much. And I think he was right. She did have a good game plan. She knew what she needed to do. This is what I mentioned earlier. It's one thing to know. Like, you know you're going to go against Jessica Andrade at strawweight. You know she's she's Hercules. You know she's Hercules. So how, are you going to be able to stop it? You know, it, sometimes it's just overpowering to the point where you can't. She did her, she did her absolute best in that contest. I, I really believe that. Maximum effort from Tisha Torres. Trying to take the back at certain times. Trying to scramble to her feet at times. Trying to minimize... Uh, exposure underneath from guard, if she could, standing when she could as well, trying not to get her back up against the fence if she could avoid that as well. But Jessica Andrade can just hit takedowns from super suboptimal positions merely by force of will, and that's just hard to overcome, man. Because you're like, oh, I'll have an underhook on this side, right? They're wrapping this leg with this hand, so you want to underhook this hand, pull them apart, right? Doesn't matter. It doesn't. It just, she'll just pull it back around and then pick you up and then drop you. Nothing technical about that in certain respects. And then it just doesn't matter. So what, what can you really do? A uh, great win for Jessica Andrade. So it creates a bit of an interesting situation in that division because, as we know, Yuanina Jacek is going to face Rose Nama Yunus at UFC 223. She's the number one contender, whatever you want to make of that. Um, so if Jacek wins, are they going to do a rematch from the Dallas fight? I guess they could. Uh, but if Nama Yunus wins, to me, that's a really, really interesting contest. Jessica Andrade versus Rose Nama Yunus, if that's the fight they end up making, wow, would that be great, huh? 
what an amazing contest. Um, the stick and move that Namias would have to be under to win would be would be very difficult for her. Um, but she's she's technical, she's savvy, um, she can strike her ass off as we've seen. She's getting better fight over fight given her relative youth and of course the camp that she's with and the training partner she's with. But Jessica Andrade is, you know, a T1 Abrams, man. A T1 Abrams. She is absurd. Absurd. So, I'm looking forward to... I mean, I was already looking forward to UFC 223, of course. Now even more so. Now even more so. She had that Freddie Serrano strength, man. That crazy horse strength. You're just born... You're just born like a hoss. And, and you know, yeah, you can refine that. You can work on that. You can do something special with it. But... You know, you could train your whole life and not be as strong as Jessica Andrade for a woman. You know, it, it's just a God gift. <laughs> it's just a, it's just God's gift. But it, I'm not sure what else to say about it. Um, where does this put Tisha Torres, by the way? Let me just review this, given her current place in that division. Currently, she is ranked at strawweight. Man, she was five. So below her would be Esparza, Waterson, Felice Eric, uh, Cynthia Calvillo, and then Alexa Grasso. Probably is going to drop her a couple of slots, but it still makes for some interesting divisions. By the way, that women's strawweight or uh, matchups. And by the way, that women's strawweight division is one of the best. You got Rose at the top. They've got a rematch coming. You got Andrade doing incredible things. Gadelia is still there. Kovalkiewicz is still there. She's got a big fight coming up, of course. Torres for now is at five. Esparza is doing interesting things with, with uh, a bit of a rebound. You got Waterson. You got all kinds of interesting characters there, all the way down to uh, Tatiana Suarez at, at fifteen. So. That's, to me, my favorite women's division for now, and, and I really, really enjoyed that contest tonight. I'm trying to think of, like, a better woman's fight. There's been more historic ones. There's been some that have more definitive finishes, obviously. This one went to the judge's decision, but um, I don't know. That was a great one. That was a really, really good one. I don't want to oversell it, but I don't want to undersell it either. All right, so that would then take us to the next fight. Uh, Ilir Latifi... Versus Ovin St. Preux, standing guillotine choke at 348. St. Preux, man, he was coming into this contest riding high. You know, he had the finishes. Um, who all had he finished, right? He had finished Okami. He had like the two Von Flues, right? So he had finished Hogeria de Lima with a Von Flu. Then he finished Okami with a Von Flu. And then he had that Corey Anderson one where he faked the punch. Anderson leaned, and then he leans right into the head kick, right? That was brilliant. That was in November. So it was a three-fight win streak. Coming into this contest, Latifi had beaten, remember, uh, he got knocked out by Ryan Bader, but then came back with a really nice win over Tyson Pedro. It was boring, but, I mean, we all kind of like saw Tyson Pedro's entrance in the UFC. We're like, oh, this guy might be the next big thing, and he still might, but um, he has to rework that because he couldn't beat Ilya Latifi. So Latifi comes into this, this contest, and what do you want to say? I thought I thought he was going to have problems, to be honest. I, I really I did not get, I did not gauge this one properly on the pre-fight. I thought St. Peru was just really good about, not. I thought he would be good in this contest, about maintaining just enough distance to piece up Latifi, get him desperate, and then maybe do something later. I thought he'd be really active with the leg kicks. And you could say, well, wouldn't wouldn't Latifi be a takedown threat? But I thought that the scrambling of and the wrestling of St. Prue has been dramatically improved. So ordinarily you would say, well, you don't want to kick against the guy who's looking to wrestle you, but St. Prue take some risks like that, and I do think his scrambling has been very much improved. And I thought he would just be able to find an interesting opening. His striking is, if you if you had to compare the striking prior to tonight, you might say that, you know, OSP has a little bit more in the tank in that regard. 
didn't matter tonight. Um, you could you knew what Latifi had to do. He had to jump into range and find a way to connect. Uh, it's exactly what he did. That guy is insane powerful. Insane powerful. And then to finish him with a standing guillotine, you know, here's the truth about the standing guillotine. Typically, that's going to be a submission you're going to get over low-level opposition because there's a lot of different uh, ways to escape it or at least to challenge it, and it's just hard to finish someone with it. Now, the truth of that is, if you're rocked and then you do it and you don't have the wherewithal to fight the hands, which he didn't, then it could be a bit of a different issue. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, and I'm not calling OSP low-level, far from it. I'm just saying, like, there was that one run that Overeem went on when he was in, like, that Uberim phase. He was getting, like, a lot of donks with the standing guillotine. Yeah, he was fighting a lot of donks in, like, these European shows that were not all that great. Um, this is unusual because you hit it on a high-level opponent who has his own set of, like, very unusual chokes himself. And you saw him just dig into it and then drive the hips. I've actually, you know... That's that's a very hard choke to hit, especially on a guy like bigger and taller than you. And then he just dumped him to the mat, like John Jones, Leoto Machida style. What a win for him. Now, in the end, he calls out Daniel Cormier. I don't really know what that's going to do because he's got business, and not even until July against Daniel, excuse me, against Steve Miocic, up a weight class. So I guess we're going to have to see. The other interesting aspect of that is Alexander Gustafsson is your current 205 number one contender. So would he fight him since they both trained All-Stars? Or would Luke Rockhold ostensibly moving up to that division? Is that the fight that they make? It's, it's really, really hard to say. But Latifi is one of these guys, again, who... If he can land that big punch, right? And that's a big if. But if he can find a way to find your chin, then he knows he can create enough havoc where he, can, he trusts that whatever the follow-up needs to be, he can find it. He just has to roll the grenade in the room and, and make sure no one jumps on it. Because once it goes off, then he can go in, right? That's sort of what he's looking for. And it's not that, that's something that's not often, always available to him, especially when guys are really good at sticking and moving or really fast, really good wrestlers, like dynamic talents like Ryan Vader in, in, that, in, that, in that relative matchup sense. Um, but it, it, it was everything he needed tonight. It was everything he needed tonight. Very unusual finish, but a very dominant finish. Two-fight win streak for the guy. By the way... MMA junkies Mike Bond noting that the fighter with the longest win streak at light heavyweight, win streak, not unbeaten streak, win streak tonight is Shogun Hua with three. Three consecutive wins. Yikes, light heavyweight is sad, man. By the way, here's how light heavyweight checks out. For just the moment, however, again, whatever these are worth to you, I'm just reading what they are. One is Cormier, two Gustafson, or one is Gustafson since Cormier is your champ. Uzdemir at two, Teixeira at three, four is Manawa, five Saint Pru, six is Shogun, Serkinov, Elil, Latifi, Corey, Anderson, Patrick Cummings. So there's still some interesting fights they could make for him. They could do Uzdemir versus Latifi. I know it's a win versus loss scenario, but they could do that. Um, maybe they give a lever to Sheriff. That's another interesting one. Those are both fights that could be really, really fun. Especially, I, I would actually say that Uzdemir would be a worse matchup for him. Um, but both of those could be fun. But Latifi, man, he's he's a he's a handful. They call him the Sledgehammer for a reason. By the way, Sledgehammer wins in the featured fight, and in Jessica Andrade, apparently, what, I don't know how you say it in Portuguese. Her nickname is Pile Driver. And then in the main event, you had Jeremy Stevens defeating Josh Emmett. Now, all of these guys use technique to win on his lady. 
They all use technique to win. They all use smarts. Don't misunderstand me. But the one exception here, of course, is Max Griffin and Mike Perry, which we'll talk about in just a moment. My point being is the physicality of those fighters was a real key ingredient for their finish, either in landing the shot or in the finishing of the choke or in Andrade's case in getting the takedown, establishing top control and forcing a fighter back and forcing this you know, constant set of retreat and retreat and retreat. Or in the case of Stevens versus Emmett, you know, having a bit of a power duel in that in that sense, and then and then winning it out, and then using that hammering ground and pound. It was a main card night, mostly, although not entirely, for the physicality of a fighter to play a role. People don't realize. That. I mean, look, skills win fights, but if you have physicality as a natural asset, and then you can channel it into either a particular technique, or a set of techniques, or a psychological advantage, or some kind of way to have that strength effectively manifest itself in a series of different scenarios, it's, it is it is a skill, right? I always talk about this in the weight room, too. People think about the weight room, it's like, well, if you're just naturally strong, you just go in there and pump iron. And yeah, if you work out, you get stronger. But it's not that way. Like, weightlifting, any kind of lifting, bodybuilding, the same, but to a lesser extent. But weightlifting is a skill, man. It's a skill. You got to know how to channel that. Like, all those dudes who are international class lifters, they're all strong as balls, but that's a skill you have to learn to get under the bar for a snatch. It's a skill you got to learn to get maximum force production with a deadlift. It's a skill you got to learn, you know, to 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 squat ATG or whatever, and then all the way you have to hold the bar and everything. It's a skill, man. Um, and if you can, your best technique will, it will typically, I mean, some form breakdown happens at the highest thing, but your best technique is... Uh, going to be usually in conjunction with your best result. And so as someone like Stevens or Andrade or Latifi continue to find effective ways to channel that, those physical advantages, as a psychological advantage, as a physical advantage, as a physical advantage, they're going to be able to do more and more interesting things. And I'm very, very excited, particularly with someone like Jessica Andrade, man. It was weird. Like, you guys know, if, if you haven't figured it out already, if you're new to me, uh, then you don't know this, but if you know me, like, I know that no one else on the goddamn face of the earth really cares all that much about strength sports, but outside of MMA, strength sports are like my favorite things in the world. Um, and it was just cool to see people who can take, if not outright strength in the sense that we're, we're thinking about things, but physical MMA, but make it scientific or find an effective channeling of it. I, I don't know. I, I really, I really admire that. So let's take that now to now the opening fight on the main card. Max Griffin taking on Mike Perry. He wins unanimous decision 29-27, 29-27, 30-27. Let me pull up a really great tweet from Patrick Wyman. Shouts to Patrick Wyman. I saw this earlier. I believe I retweeted it. Patrick, if I didn't, please forgive me. But it was really, really good. Uh, let me see if I can find it. As I pull this up. By the way, you can follow him at Patrick underscore Wyman. Here we go. This is great. He writes, This is Perry's ninth fight in the last two years. He looks worn out and slowed down tonight, like he's picked up a bunch of injuries and issues that have caught up with him. Uh, great, great observation. Let's review that for just a second here. And by the way, let me just also say, I slept on Max Griffin. I did not think he was going to look as good as he did. I know he faded a bit late, and Mike Perry had a bit of a surge late, but it was too little too late. I'll just eat crow on this one. I did not see him having that kind of success tonight, at least not over the long haul. I thought eventually Perry would make 
the appropriate adjustments, and he didn't. And uh, so all the credit in the world to, my, to uh, Max Griffin. He did great. I didn't see it coming. You know, that's the fight game a little bit here. A couple of reminders here about Mike Perry. Number one, he's 26 years old. Number two, let's review this. So here is his 2016. This is his 2016. He didn't fight until March of that year. He fought in March, in May, in, and then he debuted in the UFC in August. Then he followed that up with October. And then he fought again, Alan Joban, which he lost to in 2016. That was five fights he fought in 2016. Then in 2017, he fought Jake Ellenberger, Alex Reyes, and then Ponzinibbio. So that's three fights, and now Max Griffin again in February. So since that time, you had Frank Carrillo, David Mundell, Hyungu Lim, Danny Roberts, Alan Joban, Jake Ellenberger, Alex Reyes, Santiago Ponzinibbio, and Max Griffin. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It's not uncommon to see guys on the regional scene as he was starting out in 2016 acquire a lot of fights because they're often taking short notice contests for someone else who dropped out or they're trying to get as much money as they can because these don't are not particularly lucrative contests or they're just trying to get as much experience as they can trying to get ring time um, so they'll just take a bunch of fights it's not uncommon by the way to see guys on the regional scene especially if there are blue chair prospects coming up six or seven fights it's not uncommon at all it's like once you get to the ufc that really begins to slow as it should but just to keep that in mind so he was on this like regional sports regional MMA scene trajectory, and then went to the UFC and just kind of kept up a really hectic schedule. I agree. I think that, like, uh, we talked about this on the last post-fight special, I believe, or maybe it was a couple of them ago. Well, that was the last one, but whatever. Um, Sage Northcutt. Like, Sage Northcutt had a fight UFC Norfolk, then he came back, and he should have lost to Thibaut Guti, Thibaut Guti, whatever. Thibaut Gautier gave the fight away with unbelievably poor fight IQ, but the judging was, mm. and the point being was, and I thought Sage was right. He was like, you know, my last fight was only three months ago, and I'm 21 years old, like I'm getting better, and I think that's true. So my thought was, let's give that guy a chance to like spend six months, even nine months maybe in the lab, and then come back and let's see what he looks like. I would say the same if I'm, if I'm um, Mike Perry. I know he is itching to get out there. And really take on the best of the division. And I don't know if he can fight those guys. Even if he does take time off and just works on his craft. Maybe he can. I don't really know. I'm not saying take a year off or something. That would be kind of crazy. But six months seems like another perfectly good opportunity. Get in there. Heal up from this fight today. He was bleeding from like 30 seconds on. So he's obviously taking a lot of damage probably inside and outside the gym. You know, I, I, he was, he was, wasn't he, what, what, uh, isn't there a video of him like deadlifting and then his girl's like kicking him in the stomach as he's like flexing at the end of the of the lockout, it's like not a good idea, you know. Let's let's smarten up that training, and I'm sure he will. Take some time, work on his craft, get a good opponent that's you know a good chance of beating because that's the name of the game in terms of improvement, and then come back. But just like the way he's going now, it's just a little bit too much. And I thought maybe Max Griffin was the appropriate challenge for him, but that wasn't true either. Max Griffin, I thought did all the right things, stuck to a game plan was defensively locked in, knew his responsibility. I think he benefited from the fact that Mike Perry was headhunting tonight. He also benefited from the fact that Mike Perry had his hands down and was looking for a heavy shot over the top, really wasn't putting his shots in combination together all that well. Max Griffin was just throwing nice, clean shots down the middle, man. And they were connecting, and he was on his hot bike. To the extent he wanted to be uh, defensive in the clinch, he was. What was interesting to me was how much better, at least in the first and third rounds, 
Perry looked wrestling. That was the one upside here. I thought his wrestling looked much improved, much improved. His sense of base, his ability to scramble to his base from certain positions where it almost looked like a sacrifice throw, but he could come up to his base as he needed to. His ability to keep locked hands through the process. Like, I was very impressed by some of the improvements that Mike Perry had made, and I thought, well, why doesn't he just wrestle him? And this is what I mean. 26 years old, you want to win via knockout, you're in your hometown, or... You know, something approximating that. You know, I want to. He's. You know, he wanted to win via knockout, and I thought to myself, man, if you're as well-rounded as we think you might be able to be one day, you should have wrestled that guy. I know maybe that wouldn't have worked either. I don't know, but it. Those first two rounds, I, I, I especially the way the first round ended, I was like, Perry might be better than this guy on the ground, which is I thought the opposite would be true heading into it, and he just didn't. He didn't go for it, and um, and so he he. The rightful guy won. Max Griffin was the rightful guy, and he won. By the way, he enters this contest. Here was his resume for the UFC for folks unfamiliar. He lost to Colby Covington. Then he beat Eric Montano. Then he lost to Eliza Zaleski Dos Santos, who's a tough guy. And then he beats Mike Perry. Not a bad resume. Not a bad resume at all there. Mmm. Delish. That Wawa. Uh... But uh, he took me by surprise, for sure. Because we all had Mike Perry pegged as, man, wouldn't Perry versus Till be awesome? Or wouldn't Perry versus Cerrone be awesome? Time to pump the brakes on that. To me, there was other welterweight winners tonight, um, including Alan Joban, that would probably be more of a, would be better served against Cerrone than Perry. It might be more fun to see Perry, but you're going to just be throwing him to the wolves. I don't think it's a good idea. And you might be saying, well, look, this guy keeps losing. Why are you treating him like a different prospect? Look, I, I don't know, guys. Some guys you peg as people you want to pay attention to. Some guys you don't, and then you get surprised. Then you have to end up paying attention to the ones who keep winning and the ones who keep losing you don't. But look, Perry is a guy who, let's be clear about it, is rough around the edges, man. He said some things that were pretty objectionable. But I do think he's a guy who's learning on the job, both about the, the nature of the job itself and himself as well. Has a hard scrabble background. Has an interesting story. I think he has a magnetizing personality to an extent. That's probably debatable to some of you, and that's okay. But that's really my sense of things. And so... There's a little bit more of a spotlight on him than there is for other people. So he's going to get a little bit more attention and measurement, so to speak, than others as well. Um, it's just the way it goes. All right, so let's. Um, that's the end of the Fox card. Well, the main, excuse me, the Fox main card. So let's do this. Let me 